Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is yet another week of an episode of Continuing the Conversation. And uh, today uh, we are joined by a special, special guest, one that has never before shared this story, uh, who has uh, uh, probably many of us have been wanting to know more and more about this person. Uh, we don't get hardly any time with him. Uh, this is none other than Dr. John Mark Davidson. Uh, he's joining us uh, live from his bedroom uh, desk at, at his uh, at his home, and uh, we're we're so happy to have you, John Mark, today. Of oh, course, I'm being a little facetious. Uh, you're on here every week. <laughs> hey, thank you, Jake. Uh, it's good to be on here. It's kind of weird to uh, be a guest. I don't feel this this it's the right thing. I feel like people are going to turn this off now, uh, but um, and I still can't you can't get used to that doctor part. I, I don't think it's ever going to fully set in, but. Uh, it really meant a lot that uh, you would, uh, you know, have this episode to, to talk about some of my research, and I'm humbled by this. And again, I appreciate this this chance, man. I really, I really do. Absolutely. You know, the past couple of weeks, we've uh, kind of our theme has been just sharing stories mm. from people in our church. We've uh, we've had Rio Behar uh, come yes. on to talk about kind of from the perspective of a of a, uh, you know, she works as a counselor for a school. Uh, so kind of talk about everything that's going on from the uh, perspective of a, an educator and yes, uh, what a yeah. great episode, great story, great uh, person uh, in our church, Rio. And then, you know, we've had yes. uh, Sharon Nickel uh, was on Ooh. a couple of weeks ago and Addie Locks yes. was on a couple of weeks ago. Oh. And, uh, a Green lot of people have a lot of stories to tell. And uh, this week you have a story to tell. Uh, and it's one that you're probably not overly enthusiastic about you know, blowing your own trumpet, tooting your own horn. But uh, you hit a major milestone this last week, and uh, you were able to submit and defend your dissertation for your PhD program and uh, successfully defend. So tell us a little bit about uh, just kind of the details of last week and uh, what, what happened for you, and then we can really dive into yeah. your, what you're really interested in after that. Oh, man, Jake, thank you, man. And, and uh, it really is... It's surreal and it's an honor to talk about this. This has been a five-year journey. Um, we, uh, I started this doctorate about five years ago and I was at the time I was living in Peru and I heard about this program at Pepperdine University. And uh, you know, this program was uh, one where it was a hybrid program and where you could have it online, but once every two months you would travel to California and it'd be an intensive four days. And so uh, I started doing that while I was living in Peru. So every two months, I was having to fly back to California for this four-day intensive. And it was kind of funny because, you know, me trying to find the most affordable flight, I was averaging about two floors uh, at nights on the floor of airports every trip. <laughs> and, uh, and so I, I'm an expert at what airports are really good to sleep in on the floor. And, uh, you know, I've done, I've, I've slept in so many of them, but one of them, I think that just for people who want to know, I think the top airport to sleep in on the floor is Denver. That is the best. So they got carpet and some nooks and crannies. Uh, but uh, I, uh, about two years ago, or a year and a half ago, I finished all my coursework and I didn't need to go into California anymore. And uh, in the meantime, I moved back to Dallas and Skillman was so kind and supportive of me continuing this education and really encouraging me to, to not stop but to pursue it. And uh, then all I had to do was my dissertation. And uh, this took me about a year and a half to complete. Um, and uh, for those who don't know, a dissertation has five chapters. Um, and the first chapter is basically the introduction. It kind of gives the purpose of the study, uh, the problem that is, is evident and in, in how this research will contribute and the significance of it. The second is called the literature review. It's the, it's the beast. It's the hardest chapter because you have to read all of the, the existing research that's been on this topic and see, well, what, how am I going to contribute to it? What's already been said? Where are holes? And how can my research contribute to the literature? And then chapter three is a detailed account on how you will go about your research study. And once the three chapters are done, you got to go to California and you got to present it to a board and they say, they grill you and they say, well, this is, it's, it's worthy of a dissertation. It's not worthy, you know, shift this. And so I did that back in November of last year of, of 2019 and uh, presented it. I passed the preliminary 
And, uh, and then once you get past those th that, that preliminary, you, do, you actually do the research. And so I did my research and I had a, I'll tell you about it later, you know, but, uh, and then chapter four is just detailing what, what the results of your research were. And then chapter five is the implications of the research, kind of the conclusions that are based upon the data. And then uh, once that's done, you present it again. It's called the final defense to your, your committee. And there's three PhDs who are on the committee and you have to like convince them <laughs> and they grill you, they make your seat hot. Uh, but at the end, they'll either tell you, you, you passed or you, you failed. We needed to modify it. And thankfully that occurred, uh, I, had, I had mine on April 15th. And thankfully, I guess they felt sorry for me or something. And they said, I, <laughs> I passed. And uh, so I'm officially done um, with this degree and uh, just still kind of kicking myself as that's real, really finished. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I'm sure that you're probably happy that uh, there was an extension given for taxes. Uh, oh. <laughs> is uh, known as taxes. Yes. And man, that's I can't true, imagine, man. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, taxes and defending a dissertation in the same day. Uh, so, oh man. Yeah. Uh, I haven't even, yeah, that's, that's, that's the next thing is the taxes now that there's, <laughs> <laughs> this is done. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, you know, probably the only thing people like talking about uh, less than dissertations is taxes. So let's move on. To <laughs> it's been uh, a notch up, man. Yeah, you're right. You're right. <laughs> but, uh, this is fantastic. And you mentioned that it only took you uh, a year and a half to do this. And uh, from what I understand, uh, most, um, most universities give you up to seven years. Uh, to finish this this project is that is that correct yes yeah it's the maximum amount of time is seven years and so um, some people take that amount of time um, but man uh, I really wanted to get it done and put the pedal to the metal cranked it out and and it feels it feels really good because also uh, within that seven years they still they still make you pay two credits. <laughs> you have to be you have to be enrolled in a two a two credit class while you're writing the dissertation. Yeah, and you know college has become pretty expensive, so I was excited to to uh, stop having to you know uh, pay the two credits every every term. Yeah. yeah, well, hey, that's fantastic. In a year and a half, uh, we all applaud you uh, on being able to to knock this thing out, this big project, this uh, you know beautiful project. But uh, I know it's it's a lot of work. It's taxing. Uh, and in addition to that, you've got uh, a business that you own in a different country. Uh, you've got a full-time job. You've got a full-time family, uh, full-time marriage. Uh, so you've been, you've been wearing a lot of hats and uh, taking care of a lot of responsibilities. So we all applaud you for, uh, for your work and, and what you've been able to do. But, uh, it means a lot, really. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. Well, tell us, what, is, what was your topic? What was, uh, <laughs> you know, you've got five chapters, you've got some findings, some conclusions, but what is the topic? What's, what what uh, field were you working in? Sure thing, man. Well, um, I'm, I'm going to try to make this as, as, uh, as little boring as possible, or as least boring possible, because I know that people can get kids around out, you know, we start talking about dissertations, but basically, uh, the I guess the, the big overview of what I'm talking about is this term intercultural competence. And uh, I guess, you know, the title, the title of my dissertation is it's becoming the next generation of global leaders, colon, prior experiences outside of international travel that may contribute to higher levels of cultural intelligence and in young people. So that's, that's the top, the title, and you know, it's not, it would never go on a book, but essentially uh, what I'm looking at is this term called intercultural competence. And uh, many of you guys know my background. I, I was born in, in Abilene, and, but when I was eight months old, my family moved to Southeast Asia. Uh, they moved to Bangkok, and the plan was they were going to stay for five years, but ended up, they hit a groove, they found purpose and meaning. And my, my parents ended up living in, in Thailand for 18 years. So I grew up my whole life in, in Thailand, Bangkok, kind of my hometown. And, uh, and my first year officially living in the United States was my first year at Texas A&M University in, in a college station. That was my first year and it was a great experience. And then after that, I went to ACU 
And then after that, as everybody knows, I moved to Peru for about eight years. And so I haven't lived a lot of my life in the United States, but I am an American citizen. And it's given me this great appreciation for the diversity of culture. Uh, I've had people that I've learned from in Thailand, uh, also in Peru. And, you know, part of the purpose of, of my life has, in a lot of ways, a small portion of my, my life is how can I bring the richness of these cultures together? Because, you know, I've had the blessing to live in three different countries and know the amazing richness of these cultures. How can I use my life in a small way to connect these amazing people? But as, as you guys know, sometimes when cultures collide, it doesn't necessarily work out harmoniously. <laughs> uh, I think um, there are examples, the default in human nature is that when we are around someone that's different, sometimes it can be afraid, fearful. Sometimes we can try to really convert the other person to be just like us. But there's this terminology uh, in, in this world of academics called intercultural competence. And this describes basically an, an individual's ability to operate comfortably across borders, cultures, and languages. So basically someone who has the ability to behave effectively in diverse cultural contexts. And I think we've all seen people who can do it very well, that no matter the cultural context, they can come in and thrive and connect. And in the same sense, we've, we've seen people who really crumble and uh, makes <laughs> they, they arrive in culture, diverse cultural contexts and almost it's like they make the situation worse by the way they behave and, and conflict can emerge. And so, uh, you know, my, my question is, well, how is that possible? How can people of two distinct cultures, how can they interact well together? And uh, culture is such a big word, right? Because culture is bigger than just nationality and ethnicity. I think there's generational culture. You know, you have the baby boomers, you have the millennials. They, each generation has their distinct cultural norms. You also have organizational culture, you have regional culture. And so essentially someone who is interculturally competent, they have the ability to connect with someone who is in quotations, the other, uh, someone who's different, even in, in the religious sense, someone who may believe differently, uh, you know, someone who's more conservative or more in the progressive, Typically, our response has been to just, you know, separate ourselves, but there's a better way we can still, within our diversity, uh, collaborate instead of compete. And so that's kind of the big topic yeah. is that, um, so, you know, within that umbrella, of course, there's different strands, but, you know, my specific uh, is this idea of cultural intelligence. It's under the umbrella of intercultural competence, mm -hmm. but it looks at that as a capability um, as something that can be learned and taught and developed uh, yeah. specifically. So well, I, this is, uh, I mean, this, this is, so in my opinion, this is a gold mine, uh, because oh. as you were just describing, I mean, just about every person that we encounter in some way, uh, we have to figure out how are we going to interact with them? And that person might come from a different, uh, a different background than we do. Yeah. They might have a different upbringing than we do. They might be from a different country. They might be a different generation. Or There's any number of things that uh, can cause us to yes. be different from somebody else. And so yes. uh, th this, yes. this field of study and this way of looking at the world, uh, I think it is uh, necessary, uh, especially, I mean, our world is, uh, is shrinking in so many ways. Uh, uh, where, whereas once yes. before we might never have had an opportunity to encounter somebody from the other side of the globe, uh, now all it takes mm -hmm. is a phone call or a uh, a short little plane ride, uh, a couple yes. hour plane ride to the other side of the world, you know. And, and so, mm -hmm. uh, I think this is this is a gold mine. And in fact, for followers of Jesus, uh, uh, something oh. that we've got to we've got to understand how how do we relate yes. to one another uh, on an individual basis, on a global basis. Uh, so this is this yes. is good stuff. Uh, okay, so I know that you've got uh, a handful of findings uh, that that yes. that your research uh, kind of showed you. So uh, break down some of yes. these findings for us. I think there are ten. Is that right? Yeah, ten, ten findings and four conclusions that came from this study. And uh, you know, to kind of give a little backdrop to how the study was conducted, mm -hmm. um, I uh, 
I began kind of researching what could be my dissertation topic because I need to choose a research sub, you know, a research area and go deep into it. It has to be something that no one's ever done before uh, for the idea. And so um, I had a, I have a, a contact who works at a private university in Texas. And at this university, every year they send students on a summer trip, like a study abroad. And for the past several years, uh, they've given every student who goes on this trip, prior to that trip, they give them this assessment called the Cultural Intelligence uh, Scale, the CQS. And they give a CQS ex assessment uh, prior, at the beginning, you know, before they have a trip. And then they also give one at the very end. So they give two, and their purpose of, of doing it is to see if there's any change in the results from the trip. But basically what this assessment does is this assessment measures cultural intelligence, which is, as I described earlier, a capability of intercultural competence. So, and it's been validated. This assessment is very well known. It's, it's respected in the academic community. And so basically, if you score high on this assessment, the CQS, the cultural intelligence scale, it basically indicates it's a, it's a very effective predictor for being able to function effectively in diverse contexts. That those that score high they they have the the capability of intercultural competence. So uh, I began kind of looking. They they gave me access to the scores um, over the past several years. And when I looked at the scores, I was one thing that stood out to me was that these individuals were eighteen to twenty four years old who took this. There it's, it's at a university. Some of them are eighteen. Some of them are nineteen, twenty. But at the oldest would be twenty four. Mm -hmm. And I was looking at the scores, and several of them scored very high on this assessment which indicated that they are interculturally competent. Mm -hmm. So right there, this is an interesting observation, is that already it is true that young people can have the capability to interact well with people of a different culture in culturally diverse contexts. that even at this young age, they already have it. Mm -hmm. Now, why? How did these young people get to be this, have this at a young age? Uh, is it how they were raised? Is it certain experiences? Were they born with it? Because as other literature points out, the earlier you can learn something, the more ingrained uh, these can be in your life. And so the earlier we can teach intercultural competence, the more likely adults will have it ingrained in their life. And so it's important to know, even at this young age, how do they have it? So these questions become even more interesting when you look at the news or certain news articles that point out that there are young people within that same age range that have low intercultural competence. Mm. Uh, there's young people who struggle, who are committing racist act, who are involved in hate crime. I mean, the best example is recently at that Walmart shooting that took place mm. not too long ago in El Paso. Um, that individual had wrote this racist manifesto mm -hmm. and then went to El Paso and killed 22 innocent people. Mm. That kid, he was 21 years old. Wow. Mm. So what's the difference between him and these students at this university? Like, were they raised different? Did they have different experiences? And so that's kind of the nugget of, of my research is trying to figure out, are there prior experiences in these individuals' lives that possibly contributed to this higher level of intercultural competence. So then, man, I started looking even further. And one of the questions on this, on the, set, on the uh, questionnaire was, have you ever left the country? Mm -hmm. So when I was looking at this, I noticed that there are several that scored very high, but hadn't ever left the country. Wow. They were they only had domestic experiences. Mm -hmm. So then that got me thinking like even more like, well, how did that happen? What experiences locally and domestically did these individuals have that could have contributed to higher levels of intercultural competence? Because if there are things that we can do in our backyard, if there are things that local schools, public schools can do here mm -hmm. in, without having to travel abroad, you know, maybe that could be helpful for us in training kids, young people who are interculturally competent. So, you know, basically, long story short, I... Uh, I sent inter uh, I took the top 30 mm. scores over the last several years who scored very high on this assessment 
and who had never left the country at the time of taking the assessment. Mm -hmm. And I sent them an invitation and said, Hey, would you be willing to, to uh, be a part of my research study? I can't, you know, uh, only thing I can offer you is a $20 gift card to Amazon. <laughs> but if you give me some of your time, you know, I'll have five questions and I'm going to ask about prior experiences in your life that could have contributed to higher levels of intercultural competence. And luckily all I needed was 15. 15 was the magic number for my study to be credible. <laughs> and so one, you know, little by little they responded and we did the interview responded. And once I got to 15, I was like, I've done it. And so I took the 15 interviews, I transcribed them and then I read everyone and I began to, to look, did they, do any of them say the same thing? Do any of them uh, mention this reoccurrence uh, over and over again? Um, and basically I came up with uh, long story short, there were 10 different findings mm. and uh, some of them, you know, I, I might start with my finding number six because the first uh, five fin findings uh, are kind of individually uh, for specific interview questions, mm. but starting in, in finding six, it kind of looks at the broader view. And then, yeah. so I'll do uh, the last four findings and then four conclusions mm. talk about it. But uh, here's interesting, something interesting. Finding number six, which is uh, when I looked at all of the answers, yeah, we had 15 people who I interviewed. And these 15 were all between 18 to 24. Mm -hmm. They all scored very high on the cultural intelligence scale. And at the time of taking the assessment, they had never left the country. Mm -hmm. So here's finding number one of the findings that in these interviews, when, when I asked them, hey, what could have possibly happened in your life that contributed to, to higher levels of uh, cultural intelligence or intercultural competence, 100% of them, every single one, 15 out of 15, mentioned that sometime in their life, they had a meaningful relationship with someone of a different culture uh, in their life. Yeah. Uh, and so they mentioned, you know, a, a friend who had, uh, you know, a family from the Philippines or some, you know, a, a roommate their freshman year who was from Latin America. But uh, it's interesting that these responses, none of them had left the country, but 100% mentioned a meaningful relationship with someone of a different culture. I thought that was kind of cool uh, that, you know, looking at, uh, you know, the conclusions based on it. Another um, finding was that uh, 12 out of the 15, 80% of them during the interview, uh, 12 of them mentioned exposure to culturally di cultural diversity um, as something that contributed to their higher levels of intercultural competence. So uh, exposure to, to specific uh, components of diverse, diverse cultures. Uh, interestingly enough, more specifically, there were two things that stood out as specific exposures mm -hmm. to uh, these young people that they, they mentioned time and time again. 67% uh, of them mentioned exposure to food of other cultures, which is really interesting. You know, if you think about it, like these are things that we can do already to our children, to young people is expose them to food of other cultures. You know, if you want to raise a global child, go eat Indian food, you know, it's, it's yeah. something like that. Uh, so exposure to food was mentioned. Uh, and then secondly, the second exposure that was mentioned a lot was exposure to different language. So these two, um, Exposure to, to cultural diversity was a big umbrella, but under that umbrella, there are two specific types of exposure, exposure to food and also exposure to different languages that can, it came up time and time again. Mm -hmm. uh, another finding, find number eight, was that almost three fourths of the participants, 73%, uh, when I asked them what prior experiences may have contributed to your higher levels of cultural intelligence, 73% of them, three, four, almost three-fourths, mentioned that at some point in their life, they have experienced uh, some form of familial or personal hardships mm. or experiences out of their comfort zone. And they directly, they directly uh, I guess, credit these experiences as contributing to higher levels of cultural intelligence. So experiences of hardship and also experiences out of comfort zone. And we'll go into that a little bit later with conclusions. Mm -hmm. uh, finding number nine, was that uh, two, there were two personality traits that came up as the most common and mentioned by the participants. Uh, curiosity 
was one of them. And also uh, the personality trait of being a learner, like someone who the posture of a learner, like wanting to know more, loving learning itself. You know, when asked, hey, what, why are you so good at interacting with people of different culture? You know, over half of them said, I just really am curious. <laughs> I just, I just always wanted to know more about other people. You know, and so that kind of component was, was mentioned. And um, anyway, the last finding was that um, formal education uh, wasn't mentioned as one of the components. Uh, that it was, I thought it would be, come out more, but like classes, specific classes. But um, uh, the finding 10 was that, foreign, that of all of them, foreign language courses were the most frequently mentioned uh, formal educational experience, but only 27% of them mm. mentioned it. Wow. So anyway, those are my findings. And then, you know, you, you get into, you look at those findings. Well, before I get into conclusions, man, anything sent out to you about those or? Yeah, well, you know, especially that, uh, you know, the number nine, the fourth one that you shared uh, yeah. about being uh, curious and being a learner. Uh, yeah. As you said it, uh, I was just reminded of our uh, brother, Ron Bordelon. Uh, yes. How he uh, always encouraged people to develop curiosity. Uh, yes. And, uh, I mean, he was talking uh, uh, specifically about faith uh, and yes. developing a curiosity about faith and always uh, kind of having that stance of a learner uh, mentality. Yeah. But man, I was just thinking about, about him and, uh, uh, but I think all of these contribute exactly, uh, not only to the idea of cultural intelligence, intelligence and, uh, competence, uh, yeah. but uh, also to the life of faith, uh, meaningful relationships, uh, man, that's, yes. that's one for one with the life of faith, you know, uh, in order totally, to, to be the church, you've got to have meaningful relationships with God and with yes. one another as believers, mm -hmm. uh, exposure to diversity. I think we can all get behind the idea of food. Uh, uh, you yeah. don't have to sell us on that one. Uh, I'll be there. Yeah. Tell, tell me which restaurant. <laughs> yeah. And uh, come on now. Hey, yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> if, if you think about it too, I mean, uh, a community of faith can play so well into this. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit more in the conclusions, but like, yeah. if you think about it, being a part of a church community, it, it provides exposure and the opportunity for these to take place. Like, yeah. number one, uh, you have meaningful relationships with those of different culture, different culture. Like it can be intergenerational, mm -hmm. uh, different political stance, um, you know, uh, ethnicity, but a church is a place where it's a gathering point of diverse thought under the common love of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus. And it's a beautiful place for that to happen. And two, also just uh, the, a component about disruption and, uh, Yes. You know, I think that the church is a place where we walk through those times. But yeah, yeah. Well, I think especially right now, uh, we are all being disrupted. Uh, you know, we yes. are uh, out of the routine. Mm -hmm. uh, we're being, uh, our lifestyles being <laughs> put under the microscope uh, and in some ways good, in some yes. ways maybe not so good uh, for us to really yeah. discern and bear down what, what is the right thing for us to do as followers of Jesus in this world. And uh, so the idea of hardships yeah. and being taken out of our comfort zone, uh, I think everybody is, is right in the middle of, of that right now as well. So uh, it, yeah. oh, man. Certainly, it certainly matters uh, for more. Uh, there, there's a wider conversation going on here that you are contributing to as well. So uh, we definitely appreciate that. So, okay. Tell us about the uh, conclusions that you oh, draw. Man. Yeah, so I came up with four conclusions uh, from the study, and the findings are kind of more of revealing the data. And I was just pretty much just spouting out statistics from the actual numbers of the data. Um, but uh, the conclusions are a bit more of a comprehensive, you kind of taking different bits, bits of pieces of the information and kind of creating a, a, a thought, a, a conclusion. And so I came up with four in the study. Uh, the first one is this that it is possible for young people to develop cultural intelligence through culturally diverse interactions and exposure without ever leaving the country. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's the first conclusion is that you don't have to travel to Zimbabwe <laughs> anymore to be, to have, or to Europe or to South America to experience intercultural interaction that even within our, our own country, within the neighbors that we live in, uh, exposure to cultural diversity and uh, the chance for meaningful relationships are possible. Mm 
And, uh, you know, I, on my, within the uh, participants, it's amazing just the meaningful relationship that they talked about. I mean, like I said, I mean, one of them, their best friend was from Cuba. Uh, one of them had a, a close friend in high school from China who spoke Mandarin. Um, another person, uh, you know, she's in a, in a interracial relationship with somebody uh, whose who's family is from the, the Philippines. And uh, one of them, their childhood best friends from Bulgaria. Anyway, like this all happened. None of these people had left the country. But it's almost like United States specifically has become a very diverse country. Um, and this diversity can be used as a tool to teach how to get along and how to behave and, and function effectively in diverse cultural contexts. Um, you know, I think I read something recently that like in by 2050, there isn't going to be an ethnic majority in the United States. Uh, that in 2013, for the first time in American history, all the babies born, none of them were a part of an ethnic majority because the uh, there was they were all minorities because of, for the first time in American history, uh, and so you think about in 2013, you know, pretty soon, um, and can we as Americans, can we instead of repelling or being afraid of the diversity, can we view it as an opportunity and as a gift yeah. to learn and to uh, if we can give our children, our young people, this gift to be able to be interculturally competent. It's going to help them in the future because this world, as you mentioned, it's only becoming closer together. Technology yeah. is only increasing the intercultural interactions. Economies of other countries are growing as well. And so um, to give our children, our young people, this gift, um, I think we as Americans have this diversity yeah. uh, as an opportunity, as, as a gift. So, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, you know, on top of that, too, it, it, uh, it, it helps us to understand not only how to interact, but even uh, you know, just thinking about the Bible. Uh, in so many ways, the Bible is an intercultural effort. Oh, yes. It's not written from our part of the world. Oh, it's not written from our true. history. It's a, different, yeah. it's a different time, a different people. And so to understand scripture uh, is even a work in this exact topic that you're talking about. Yes. And there's so many studies about diversity. Um, you know, like one study that I came across said that um, if, if the members in the group are not interculturally competent, if they have low intercultural competence, then a diverse group will have, uh, will function less effectively, right? Mm -hmm. Than groups that are more homogenous. Mm -hmm. But the same study said that if members of the group are interculturally competent, then the diverse groups outperform and function way more effectively than more homogenous groups. Yeah. So you, the diversity is going to be here, right? I mean, there's no, we are becoming a more diverse place. Yeah. So here, where, which path we're going to go on? Are we going to be full of inter, low interculturally competent? And there's going to be clashes and, and uh, you know, uh, just the effectiveness will be less. Or can we take that diversity? We can learn and grow. And can we be even better? then we would the ideas and creativity and innovation yeah. it's almost like this explosion happens when you're when you have a diverse group full of interculturally competent people yeah and um i think about it too like you know especially uh you know, we're I'll, I'll speak frankly here right i'm, I'm a white i'm a <laughs> i'm a, a, a white male right with a you know, white family upper middle class um oftentimes people like us in an effort to prepare our children for their future. Mm -hmm. uh, we haven't put our kids in diverse situations. Yeah. Um, we've almost yanked our kids out and put them in more homogenous situations with people yeah. that look just like them, that have the same educational level, that make the same choices. Mm -hmm. We think, you know, we're preparing our children to, to be better by doing that. Yeah, but what if we didn't yank our kids? Yeah, I mean, what if we didn't yank our kids out of public schools, you know, and what if um, we chose diverse neighborhoods to live in mm. instead of very, you know, uh, <laughs> the neighborhoods that sometimes are, are chosen to live in that look very, like everyone looks the same, you know? Right. But what if we intentionally uh, moved into areas where people didn't look the same as us or the educational level wasn't the same or uh, the languages spoken are different? Mm -hmm. This research that I've had 
says that it, this could actually help your child later on become more culturally intelligent more interculturally competent and mm -hmm. whenever they're faced with someone in their life that's different these experiences early on will give them the tools to function more effectively innovatively creatively uh, than what would happen if they didn't have that experience earlier on yeah yeah wow uh, that's fantastic. Uh, okay. Number, oh yeah. Number one. Sorry. So sorry. Man. Yeah. Two. Yeah. Conclusion number two has to do with this thing called disorienting dilemma. Because uh, I talked about how there was the so many mentioned experiences at their comfort zone experiences uh, at work or family hardships. So conclusion number two is experiencing a in quotes disorienting dilemma can be formative in the development of cultural intelligence cultural intelligence in young people. I mentioned findings that the findings that so many mentioned these disruptions in their life um, and how it was a direct contributor to their higher levels. Uh, and it's interesting if you look at it, I mean, one of them mentioned a parent's divorce uh, at a young age after years of fighting. Another mentioned a brother who has mental illness and substance abuse. Uh, another mentioned how her, uh, her father is bipolar. Another mentioned uh, that there was substance abuse in the family, and this, this individual had to move out of their house at 12 and live with his grandmother. Mm. Um, another mentioned a, uh, that they themselves had an anxiety disorder and auto, autoimmune disease. Um, another mentioned that uh, you know, he wears hearing aids and is deaf. And another, her mom has multiple scler sclerosis, MS. Uh, another, her dad passed away at 16. I mean, these are out of the 15 that I interviewed, I think 87 percent had mentioned something like this. Mm -hmm. Now, this is this says something to me that sometimes it's these disruptive moments in life that generate transformation, mm -hmm. that generate a new line of thinking. Uh, that we have this existing frame of reference that how the world is and how the world should be, but sometimes we have the experiences in life where that is put into question. Yeah. And we question everything, mm. and it causes us to 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 focus and and uh, to reorient and create a new frame of reference with the data that we have, yeah. um, and it can aid in our transformation. Yeah, uh, you know, you know me. I'm always uh, my, my field is the Bible, and so I'm I'm, I'm thinking of yes, man. Every just about every major character that I can think of in the Bible has a disorienting dilemma. Uh, yes, so uh, man. It, it, it's absolutely true that that can be formative, that that can form not only your knowledge and capability of interacting with other yeah. human beings, but mm -hmm. even with God. Mm -hmm. uh, and oh, totally. The number one thing, you know, the kind of thing that you would never ask to go through, but once mm -hmm. you have gone through it and learned from it and yes. gained from it, you would never go back and change because uh, exactly. you have that moment in the wilderness where the, the bush starts to burn and God sent you somewhere that you would never choose to go on your own. Uh, but uh, uh, you kind of have that moment and, and you look exactly, back and understand what you've learned from it and how you've grown from it. Yeah. And, and I love what you say, man. I think it's so true. And then you think about um, with young people, right. Or with kids and parents, you know, there's a new phrase right now about it used to have helicopter parenting a long time ago. It was helicopter, helicopter parenting. Mm -hmm. Now, the new phrase is lawnmower parenting, right? Where the parent is out ahead, making sure the path is easy and without you know, weeds and you know, trimming ahead. And, um, but this research says that if we want our kids to be transformed, if we want our kids to, uh, to, to, be, be, to allow for these, you know, their experiences to grow and, and to shape them into people who are, are stronger and wiser, uh, then they need to experience disorienting dilemmas. They need to. It's part of life. And maybe as parents, as, as youth workers, as people who are working with young people, our role isn't to make their life easier, right? It's to, or to like lawnmower ahead of them so they don't experience any pain or struggle or problems. But maybe our role is to allow them to experience failure, mm -hmm. to allow them to have these moments of disappointment, but to be there beside them and to walk with them through that transformational process. Yeah. Uh, maybe it's the best gift we can give our kids. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I agree with you. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So conclusion number three, number three. is this is, cool. this is a cool one, man. I like this one because um, 
Conclusion number three is that an innate, innate personality traits like curiosity and having the posture of a learner play a role in lever, levels of cultural intelligence in young people. So basically the whole point of that is that curiosity is big time. Mm-hmm. That most of these people, they mentioned this innate curiosity and also the posture of a learner. And uh, you know how you know the question behind this is: Is curiosity something that can be nurtured? Is it something you're born with? Um, you know, do you, does everybody have curiosity when they're born and as kids? And little by little, some people maintain it, some people lose it. Anyway, there's more research, but I mean, what are your thoughts on on that, man? Curiosity and yeah, you know that uh, that posture to learn. Well, I think uh, you know I think of people like uh, like my dad. And mm-hmm. even people like Chris Valentine uh, mm-hmm. who like to get into the inner workings of something and yes. figure it out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, so, you know, growing up, my dad, he was, he was this way. Uh, my dad, I'm not convinced that there's anything that if you ask my dad to do something that he couldn't figure out how to do it, you know? <laughs> uh, so you know, yeah. I, I grew up watching him, you know, do home projects uh, and mm-hmm. his, his trade was, he was an airline pilot. Uh, oh man, it's amazing! In retirement uh, from from flying, he's now had several different jobs that he's done. One of them, uh, he started an oil business and figured oh, out how to how to run an oil business, and then eventually he sold that. Uh, and yeah. then now, what he's doing right now is he's a, a contractor. Uh, and mm. so he, right, what he's doing right now is he he is flipping houses. So he buys a house, fixes it up, and then That's sells amazing. it. Yeah, so he, he knows how to do electrical, plumbing, uh, woodworking. He's able to uh, do drywall work, uh, all these different things. So yeah, just I, so I think of him of getting into the inner workings of something and figuring it out. And yeah, I, I think it's definitely something that you can be born with, but it, it can be developed as well. Because there have been yeah. things that he have has done just to pass things, pass knowledge down. And yeah. Give me experiences yeah. of the things that he's doing and the things that he's yeah. done. And so, uh, yeah. I, th- I think uh, my initial answer to, to the question is yes. Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, Tara and I were uh, talking about this just uh, a couple days ago because, you know, um, she sat in the final defense, so she got to hear these conclusions. And uh, she was telling me that, uh, you know, her thought is that every child is born with curiosity. Mm-hmm. Every, like, as a child, you have this innate curiosity, this wonder for the world. Yeah. Um, and uh, like even today, we were taking a walk um, our, our, in our neighborhood, and uh, we we came across this kid on the other side of the street, and uh, the dad was kind of laughing because this kid was just enthralled and enamored with this piece of dirt in the soil. <laughs> he was like looking at this dirt in the soil, and like he was like, I don't know why he's so interested in this, but he is. Yeah. You know, and uh, but it's almost like kids, you have this, this wonder for the world, but sometimes the experiences, the way that they're raised, can, can parents do things to keep that alive, you know, to keep yeah. that curiosity active? Because, you know, sometimes the way that school is and the standardized tests and the, you know, this and that, we can domesticate these children and that curiosity can in some ways be lost. Yeah. But as parents, as, as youth workers, as, as a church, how can we, develop you know keep that wonder and awe alive you know this this amazing this idea that this is an amazing miraculous world yeah. and uh anyway it's, it's kind of a cool question after this right how can we keep that but yeah. well i like the idea too of uh encouraging people to go take a walk and uh yeah. look for something that they don't normally see and just exactly. yeah. and just ask the question how you know yeah if it's a, exactly. a lot of dirt how 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 did that clot of dirt come to <laughs> You know? yeah, exactly uh, exactly go through a thought experiment try to figure out how it's possible that what you're looking at could possibly be you know just and sky's the limit you know dude i'm convinced that this this thing you know curiosity and being a posture of a learner these are spiritual disciplines mm-hmm. i really think that i think yeah. that it takes intentionality i think that it takes a practice but this is the work of spirituality like this is part of the holistic healthy spirituality is because I think sometimes the opposite of that is that, you know, we lo- we lose it. You know, we don't we don't see the miracle 
of that our heart is beating or that the world is spinning around the sun right now or that there's a there's stars in the sky i think that but that awareness that curiosity that wonder and awe i think it can only lead us to a closer connection with the divine with god yeah absolutely absolutely that's uh, that's fantastic and something that uh, I, I want to go for a walk now and, and just yeah. <laughs> yeah man look at some dirt yeah <laughs> yeah and uh well i want to be uh cognizant of your time man so i'll, I'll just finish up the the last conclusion yeah, tell, tell us number four it, it was, yeah conclusion number four and this kind of had to do it kind of it's kind of related to, to, to three but in the context and the discussion of developing future global leaders um the research the data that came that came through in my study was that experiences that can generate empathy mm. can be formative in the development of cultural intelligence in young people. So it's interesting when I ask these individuals, Hey, tell me about why are you able to function effectively? Like you have scored very high on this assessment, which means that you are interculturally competent. Why? How did that happen? Mm -hmm. And several of them mentioned certain experiences that generated empathy. Um, you know, for example, you know, that one student I mentioned earlier who mentioned how her mom has multiple sclerosis. Mm -hmm. You know, she mentioned that specifically as generating empathy. She said that, you know, having a mother with multiple sclerosis enabled her to be sensitive to people who have families that have cancer or other illnesses that, you know, the family member they take care of because, you know, they're maybe a little bit disabled uh, compared, you know, to everyone else and sometimes compared to someone who's fully functioning. And uh, it's interesting that the research came out that are there certain experiences that can generate empathy, that, that, that create a greater sense of connectedness, that we're all in this together, because several of the experiences were directly linked to that empathetic role. Mm. So what are other things in life? What are other experiences that can generate greater empathy? Mm. Um, it's interesting. There are two things that came that I thought were very interesting from the study. Uh, one was drama theater. Um, several of these students specifically mentioned being a part of a theater department, uh, theater productions as directly improving their empathy. <laughs> like someone even said that being a drama major is basically being an empathy major <laughs> because you think about it, right? If you're in drama, if you're doing role play, you have to step into the shoes of somebody else. Mm. Like you have to get into that character's mind, how they view the world, how they see things. And if there's anything that challenges ethnocentrism, it's that exercise. Yeah. It's stepping into the shoes of somebody else. Mm. Um, so that was one interesting thing. You know, if, if there's ever an article written about it, if you want to raise a global child, enroll them in drama school, you know, something like that. <laughs> if you want to raise a global child, go eat Indian food, you know, something like that. But yeah. drama is a part of it. Um, and then, um, yeah, and just, you know, these, uh, you know, whatever can generate that empathy, it has an effect on their intercultural competence. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think, I hope at least that the spiritual overtones of that uh, conclusion to your study uh, are pretty obvious to folks of the right. idea of developing empathy. And uh, hopefully right. I, we don't need to do a lot of work to draw that out uh, <laughs> to see why that would be a part of the Christian life. <laughs> and another thing too, that in that, that umbrella was uh, service and volunteer opportunities. Yeah. I think uh, it, with these young people, they mentioned experiences in life where they served homeless people or they... Yeah. They went to, you know, you know, did this as a service project with their church or mission trips to this place, uh, domestic mission trips. You know, these exposure to people who are not like them, uh, it gave them the sensitivity and this empathy, which ultimately contributed to their intercultural competence. So they're good things in the church. The church, this is what we're about, man. Yeah. This is part of our DNA. Yeah. Wow. Well, hey, John Mark, thank you for uh, sharing these findings and these conclusions oh, with us. Man, thank you, man. I'm so humbled that you would even ask, man. Um, and I, I, I'm, I get excited when I talk about it, but I understand too that it's, it can be a little bit, um, it could be dull, you know. But I'm so thankful if you've sit through this, if you've sat through this entire interview, and I'm so humbled, Jake, that you had this idea. Um, I'm honored that you you even ask, man, and it means a lot. And, and thank you for yeah. giving me a chance to share a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. It's my pleasure. And I know 
uh, I know I've learned and I, I, I know that our listeners uh, at the church have learned as well. And uh, there's a lot of good stuff here that we can, we can begin to put into practice, whether uh, for our own lives or for the lives of our children, uh, kids at our church, uh, people that we interact with on a daily basis. Uh, so thank you for sharing these, these findings and these uh, things. We're excited for you that you are uh, in the free and clear uh, as far as yes. tuition and yes. this big project uh, weighing on your shoulders and hanging over your head. Uh, yeah. uh, maybe the last question I'll ask you is, uh, I know that uh, the sky's the limit right now. You know, anything is possible. But uh, what, what's maybe one thing that you thought, this is something I'm going to do to celebrate, uh, that this is over? Man. Oh, that's a great question, man. Um, honestly, I'm a little bit tired right now. It was, it was a big, a big uh, project and just kind of the culmination of it. I'm excited to just uh, do nothing for a little bit and focus on the job at Skillman. You know, uh, I'm excited about creating, you know, we're doing some great content work right now. You know, it's kind of fun to dream about um, things we can create and be a part of here at Skillman. I'm excited about that and, and dedicating more time to that. Uh, being more uh, supportive of my, my family too. You know, my wife, Tara, I feel like she gets a, an honorary degree because she really took the hit on a lot of this. Uh, and through it all, I was so supportive and so loving and so encouraging. And she never once said, John Mark, why did you even do this? She was always like, I'm so happy, you know, what can I do to help you with this? And I really want to return the favor. I want to support her. And if she has any academic endeavors or whatever, I, I just, I want to be there for her now as well. And uh, who knows what will come of it, come of it. Uh, um, but I'm, I'm thankful to be done. and. Uh, have a little more time, you know, to, to, to give people calls and go on walks and go to coffee with people, you know, uh, I'm looking forward to when we can gather together again as people. Yeah, yeah that's right. Well, Hey man, congrats and, uh, take a little Sabbath uh, and hug, hug yeah. your wife, hug your kids, <laughs> th throw the football around in the front yard, yeah. soccer ball around. Oh um, yeah. You know, Come on now. Here we are. Enjoy life. my language. <laughs> enjoy hey, life, my the world. Well, we'll wrap up this week's episode here and uh, we'll be back again next week with another continuing the conversation episode. And uh, to all of our listeners know that we, we miss you guys and that uh, we thank you for your, uh, uh, for tuning in with us and for listening in with us and uh, enjoy the time that you have with your family. Enjoy the time that you have uh, to rest and recuperate and maybe even to spend some dedicated time uh, with our God uh, right now. And uh, hopefully before long, we'll all be back together again. Yes, I love it. All right. See you, John Mark, and goodbye, friends. Thank you, Jake. Hey, God bless you, my friend. Thank you again. God yep. bless you all. <laughs>